the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Alpha Centauri Romeos and Beta Proxima Beatles, plus more audio drama, this time featuring Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talked with Les Johnson this time about excellent hard science fiction entry, Saving Proxima, written by Les and Travis S. Taylor. This one is about star travel the hard, realistic way and the weird relativistic effects that have strong and permanent personal consequences for the characters, plus the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and genetic drift, and Les will tell us all about it. Now, here's the news. The September hardcovers and trade paperbacks are out at booksellers. Hooray! First is Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated by Simon R. Green. A former London cop is offered a chance at redemption and revenge when he joins Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated. Now he'll stand up to the guild-like monster clans that control the world's dark and illegal trades. Also in September is 1637. Dr. Gribbleflots and the Soul of the Stoner. This is written by Karen Offord and Rick Boatride. Downtime's greatest alchemist and a flimflam artist uptimer must put aside their differences and join forces to debunk one of history's greatest bunko artists and save the reputation of modern science and medicine from ruin. Finally out in trade paperback for the first time ever is Going Interstellar by Les Johnson, who we will talk to momentarily, and Jack McDivitt. Now, we did this as a mass market original before, Bain did, but now more than ever, the science and science fiction of space travel are becoming the stuff of headlines. So we're reissuing Going Interstellar in this excellent new trade paperback format. A gathering of tales by an all-star assortment of award-winning authors together with insightful essays on high technology by space scientists and engineers, all turning on interstellar travel using the technology we have or can rapidly develop right now. Going Interstellar, edited by Les Johnson and Jack McDivitt. 1637, Dr. Gribbleflots and the Soul of the Stoner by Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright and Jekyll and Hyde Incorporated by Simon R. Green are now available at booksellers everywhere. Hey, I want to welcome Les Johnson back to the podcast. Hi, Les. Hey, Tony. Good to be here. Les Johnson uh, is a physicist and author. He is the author of Mission to Methany, Rescue Mode, which he did with Ben Bova. Um, do we have... What's the new one? Uh, the new one is the space-time war. Right, space-time war coming up. Um, co-editor of science fiction anthologies Going Interstellar, which we're putting out in a new trade paperback edition um, next month, and Stellaris, People of the Stars. He's a technical consultant on Hollywood films, has appeared on numerous documentaries on the Discovery and Science Channel, 
And he's also a, you know, a scientist. He serves as solar sail principal investigator of NASA's first interplanetary solar sail missions and lead re- leads research on various other advanced space propulsion technologies at, um, at NASA in Huntsville. Um, can you tell us a little bit of what you're working on, Les? Because it's very interesting. <laughs> well, sure, Tony, I can. But I also have to let everybody know that uh, what I do with my writing and being on this podcast is totally separate from my day job. NASA doesn't endorse my work. Uh, they tell me it's okay to do, but, you know, I have to give that caveat. So, um, well, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, it, it's, it's really my passion. I'm working on what's called a solar sail primarily, and uh, many of the listeners might be familiar with what that is, but basically it's, a, it's an in-space propulsion technology. It means it won't get you from the Earth to space, but once a rocket gets us out into space and runs out of fuel, it's a, it's a way to move around uh, in, in space between the planets, and eventually, I believe, uh, a scaled-up version of this might take us to the stars, and it does it by reflecting sunlight, and uh, these large, thin, reflective films called a solar sail that's about the thickness of a human hair. Those of you that have, have more of it than I do. Um, very highly reflective. It looks like a sheet of aluminum foil. It's really lightweight. And as light falls on that, uh, it, the particles of light, the photons, uh, they don't have rest mass, but they have momentum. And it's like playing pool. You know, you, you hit one ball with the other, it bounces back. Well, as these photons hit the sail, they push it and they accelerate it. And you can use that by tipping and tilting the sail to steer. And it's a way to move through space without using any fuel. So the, the first uh, flight of our, uh, that, that I'm involved with is called the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout. And it will fly probably now in early 2022 on the first flight of NASA's big new rocket, the Space Launch System. It's a small spacecraft with a, about a thousand square foot sail. And it's about a, it'll go on a two-year mission to an asteroid. And so that's going to be what there. takes it there. That solar that's right. Wow. The rocket gets it to space, and then we take this little spacecraft, and we have these four booms that come out and unfurl the sail, and then sunlight pressure will we'll give us uh, an additional speed boost of about three miles per second, okay, over the two-year flight, and uh, that'll get us up to the speeds we need to do a slow flyby of the asteroid. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty excited. It's, uh, it's our first interplanetary solar sail mission. We've flown a few in Earth orbit, and then in 2025, we'll be flying a really big one. It's on the order of 17,000 square feet, and it'll be going toward the sun. And that's the one that I think we could scale up to do some pretty exciting missions beyond the edge of the solar system. But that's a whole other topic. Hmm. 17,000 square feet. That's, yeah, I think, um, think about like, a third like of a five football. houses or something like that. No, it's a lot bigger than my house. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, it's like a Walmart. Or it is. It's, it's almost that. It's, it's uh, if you go play football games, it's about a third of the size of the football field. So, um, can what if you're holding this thing? Would it tear? The no, you, you could. If you up? tried, you could tear it. Um, back in the day before COVID, when I went to science fiction conventions, I always brought a sample with me to hand out, mm. and people could pass it around. And just by holding it, you, you think you're holding non-sticky saran wrap. It looks mm. like aluminum foil. It's thinner than aluminum foil, about the thickness of saran wrap. And if you try to tear it, you can tear it. But just by holding it and folding it and wadding it up, it won't. Mm-hmm. It's pretty robust. That's super cool. And so if you're doing that, um, well, now out at Booksellers Everywhere is uh, Saving Proxima, which you wrote with Travis S. Taylor. Um, 
and, and which is a it was pretty good hard science fiction book um that uh that you it doesn't have warp drives and stuff like that in it so what is um what are the other books you wrote with travis by the way this is well saving proxima is the first book in a three book series mm-hmm. uh each book is, is going to be standalone but kind of lead to what what comes next in the series but the first two books we wrote uh, was a different series totally different universe yeah and we started out with a book called back to the moon uh, right. And the sequel to that was On the Asteroid. And it was about uh, the U.S.'s return to the moon, which looks like we're on track to do now by the mid-2020s. But when the book was written, we thought it was going to happen in the mid-teens, right? So uh, it takes a little longer in reality than sometimes fiction will let you do. And uh, it, it's, it's a very different series. It's more of a, of a near-term space adventure, whereas yeah. Saving Proxima gets you into the uh, good old-fashioned, how are we going to go to the stars, hardcore you know, deep space science fiction kind of stuff. Now you used to, before you took over the solar sail mission, uh, specialist, uh, captaincy, uh, you, you worked on interstellar, uh, possibilities for NASA as well. Um, for a while. I did. Yeah. And, and that's really, that's really my passion, Tony. If, if you look at a common theme for my life in terms of my work job, uh, mm-hmm. I, I managed, I don't know, I, Tony, uh, the, the, the coolest job title I ever had was 20 years ago, and it was uh, NASA's manager for interstellar propulsion technology research. And uh, that, that basically was saying within known physics, uh, which unfortunately things like warp drives and all that are not known mm-hmm. physics. They're, they're, they're just uh, speculative physics at best, really science fiction. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're limited to the speed of light to go to the stars or less, substantially less than that. And so we were looking at different technologies that might enable us to take that journey to the stars. And that work really influenced my career because there was a technology in there, the solar sail, and its cousin, uh, a solar sail that's augmented and thrust by having big high energy lasers shine light on it. So that as you get away from the sun, you don't you know, lose thrust as the sunlight hits them, you can keep pushing with a laser, mm-hmm. which can probably get you up to 10 or 20% the speed of light to go to the stars. And so NASA is not funding interstellar propulsion research anymore, but the solar sail work I'm, I'm working on is a spinoff of that. And I like to think that the work I'm doing on sails right now, uh, it, it, when we go to Proxima Centauri, which, oh, by the way, is the nearest star to the Earth, and we go to a planet there and maybe establish a settlement, when they write the history of that settlement and how they got there, I would like my work on solar sails to be a footnote <laughs> in, in that history volume. So that's really what motivates my day job. But in my science fiction writing, it also informs my science fiction in that, that I write hard science science fiction, which means I want to entertain the reader, tell a good story. I do the what if thing, right? You know, what, what, wow, what can we do? And, and how does traveling close to the speed of light affect the rate at which time passes? Those kind of things. But we try to keep it, Travis and I try to keep it within the realm of known physics. We may not know how to engineer these systems, but anything in our books, uh, we strive to pass the, the, the plausibility test. Does, does what we know about physics say it can be done? Regardless of whether we know how to do it or not, is it possible? And if the answer is yes, it's possible, then by golly, it's fair game. <laughs> so, yeah, that, so, so really, you mentioned the interstellar travel. It's informed everything I do. I'm also a part of the, this uh, nonprofit group called the Interstellar Research Group. Um, you can find them uh, at irg.space on the internet. 
And it's a nonprofit 501c3 educational group. We have symposia every few years. Our big symposium is actually in September of this year. It's in Tucson with the University of Arizona. Uh, and then we'll have a symposium in uh, 2023. And we've gotten two proposals for that that we'll be evaluating and selecting who will be hosting this then. So your viewers might be interested in checking that out as well. Yeah, yeah. Main book has been a sponsor for that. Yeah, that was, that's what um, is, is the descendant of the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, right? There's... That's right. What, what we found is the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, TDIW, was very successful and it was it was the, the membership was initially and our meetings were all held kind of in the southeastern USA region, bouncing back and forth between Huntsville, Chattanooga and uh, Tennessee and uh, the Knoxville, Oak Ridge, Tennessee area. But what we found out is as the organization matured and we got to our fifth and sixth symposium, um, we started having people from all over the country and all over the world participate. And we were approached in 2019, uh, before 2019 by Wichita State University in Kansas, saying, well, how would you like to uh, you know, do a major disruption and have the Tennessee River flow all the way out here to Kansas so that we can host one of your workshops? So we did. So the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop went to Kansas. And it was shortly after that, that the organization realized, hey, we've got more global participation now, or as much as we do in our little southeastern usa niche and so they changed the name to the interstellar research group and uh you become a member you can participate in various ways scholarships again partly sponsored by bain books as well as uh the outreach with these meetings and sponsoring uh, different uh, different activities yeah so, those are super exciting. cool so well let's talk about saving proxima uh, uh by the way we should also mention that travis is is as much of a scientist as as anyone, <laughs> as uh, probably as more so. I, he's got more <laughs> letters after his name in terms of degrees. He does have a lot than, of letters. Just about actually. anybody else I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and is uh, a frequent appearer on um, on television as a as a science explainer guy and host of some shows. Um, yeah, he would uh, he would want us to mention that you need to watch his show on History Channel. Uh, I think it's the it's either the Secret or the Mystery of Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, pretty exciting stuff in their second season. And uh, so Travis would be upset if we didn't mention that. It's, it's a good Absolutely. show. Absolutely, yeah. So you can check that out. So Saving Proxima is, um, is, is as you said, it's hard science fiction. And let's just set it up. So um, we start with uh, with Rain, um, our main character. What's her name? Rain is short well, for something. Yeah, Rain Gilster. Uh, her, her, her name is Lorraine. Her friend's Lorraine. called Lorraine. And she is she's on the moon. She's on the moon. This is uh, about uh, what this is 2072. That's right. About 60 years from now, 50, uh, 50 to 60 years from now, where we have a, a radio observatory on lunar far side. And the lunar far side in the solar system is probably one of the best places to put a radio astronomy because you never see the radio noise coming from the Earth. Uh, there are times when you have 14 days of darkness, so you don't have the radio noise coming from the sun, and you have a view of deep space, which basically is the most radio quiet place you can be, okay? So uh, if you're doing radio astronomy, it's an awesome place to go. And so we, we, we say that in the story, as we've returned to the moon, that one of the things we've done is uh, set up on the lunar far side an international radio observatory. And they're not there doing SETI research, they're there doing scientific research, studying astrophysical phenomena. 
And in the course of that, uh, the main character, Rain, uh, they have some pesky, uh, good old fashioned UHF noise um, that, that is, is causing a problem with their observations. And, and Tony, I tend to talk a lot, so interrupt me if you need to, but this was, this was kind of inspired by a trip I took to Puerto Rico a couple of years uh, ago. I, I was there for a meeting and as a part of the meeting, they took us on a tour to the Arecibo Radio Observatory. I think I was at that meeting with you. But you I were. I didn't go on the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Did, did you go on the tour? I didn't. No, I didn't go to Arecibo. Oh, you missed it. Um, it's not there. <laughs> I know. Anymore. I know. I wish we had. But. Um, so as we were driving there. You go to the rainforest, us, though. That was cool. Which is still there. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> nice. I agree with you. El, El Junca? Yes. It's called? Yeah. Forgive my terrible pronunciation. Okay. I apologize. People know how to pronounce these things better than I do. Um, but we were on the bus going to the Arecibo Radio Observatory, and they had these big signs posted that said, basically, you're soon to go out of cell phone coverage. And please turn off any radio transmitters or cell phones, because this noise interferes with the radio astronomy that we do here. And when we got to the observatory, uh, everything was hardwired. There were no wireless connections anywhere in the building. If they had internet, everything was done fiber and cables to cut down on the radio noise. And that made me think, you know, any kind of conventional radio noise is noise, right, for these receivers. So to, to, to not give away too much, uh, this disturbance, this, this noise that they're picking up in good old fashioned UHF, those of us of an older generation don't have the gray hair yet, but I've got the lack of hair, <laughs> may remember UHF television. Uh, where you, you you had your you know you had your three VHF channels <laughs> when I grew up, and then then the public television station was on like channel twenty eight or something. And you had to go to the UHF band of your TV. We don't do that anymore. That's all assigned to cellular networks and everything these days, as everyone went to cable. But um, they pick up radio noise, and in looking at the radio noise, they figure out first they think it's some kind of pirate station or leakage or somebody who's breaking the rules on their satellite. And then they figure out, no, 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 this is something else. And when they delve further into it, they have the, the, a big reveal, which happens early in the book, which is what sets up the rest of the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can talk about that, I think, because that is the beginning, the very beginning of the story, which is, is, is this is a message from our nearest neighboring, neighboring system. It is. It's, it's leakage. Uh, there's no message really in it. It's, what, what they find is they, they realize that this is some kind of modulated signal on good old-fashioned 1952 era UHF, okay? And um, so they, they're, they're trying to understand it, and someone has the epiphany, well, let's just put it through the speaker system and see what it sounds like. And I don't know how many people out there play around with shortwave radio these days, but I, I still dabble in that a little bit. And you can get these receivers and you, you get stations where your audio and you have Voice of America, Radio Free Havana, whatever is out there. But a lot of what you hear are all the chirps, bleeps and pops of, of uh, a data transmission that use the shortwave frequency band. And, and so you, you just it's not noise, it's just some kind of digital data that's being encoded and sent around. And so they fully expect to hear that kind of thing because if it's a late 21st century radio broadcast, that's what it would be. Well, instead, what they hear is music. And eventually they hear voices, human voices. 
And, uh, if, and again, they're not sure that this isn't really a practical joke or, or some kind of leakage, but the instruments are not quite right, not familiar, but they're definitely instruments. And they're definitely male and female voices speaking. Hmm. So that leads to the reveal that this is uh, noise uh, coming from Proxima Centauri. Something is very strange here. Yes. Something that shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right. Before we, I mean, we don't want to talk too much about those guys. Uh, what did you end up calling them? The Fentadarians. Fentadarians. <laughs> yeah. Now, Travis came up with that. I'll, I'll give him that. That was his. And, and comes comes from their history. I mean, there's, it's a long story, but it, they have the, their own name for their culture. And, and the bottom line is, Tony, you know, we, we, we speculate in this book, we're pretty sure that humans originated on it, right? And that we've been here a long time, our civilization developed here, and it looks like that our uh, human life is DNA-based and everything else on the planet is DNA-based. And it's been around a long time, developed here on planet Earth. So we're pretty sure we're native to Earth, right? Mm -hmm. And they come to realize that on a planet that, looks like it would be pretty inhospitable to life circling the closest star Proxima Centauri that there's also human life us people and their technology is not where we are in the late 21st century it's about 100 years behind but in you know in the scale of human history and evolutionary time that's just not likely at all that there's anybody else out there that looks like us and if there were that they would be even close to us in technology or similar to us. Yeah, it seems very unlikely, and it seems like a great mystery that that could power a series. <laughs> <laughs> what a great idea! <laughs> so, um, so something's wrong, and 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 we uh, that is humanity decides to go and uh, mount a mission to try to help. Um, how will how can we get there? What do we do? And what are well, some of the machinations that that <laughs> must be gone through there just some of the uh, let's just talk a little bit about about our ship and about um some of the shenanigans of of getting it getting it up there um, well you know there's always the technical and and it's it's a strong urge on the part of the technical side of writers to, to spend a lot of time on that and and i have to fight that urge because what's important is the story right yeah and as as i look at my career and, inf and let that inform my writing, I've realized that to get your project funded, well, let me just restart this. At NASA, there are a lot of smart people. And I am not the sharpest stick in the stack. And that is, that is not a self-deprecating comment. Uh, anybody who's in a career in any field, no matter how good you are at your job, you realize there are people who are better at it than you are, right? <laughs> okay? There always is a better writer. There's always a better physicists, you know, it's just the way the world works. But a lot of these people who are smarter than me that have really good ideas don't get their work funded. And the reason for that is they're so wedded to their technology, they're not very good at communicating and articulating the why and getting the people who have the money to fund work. And so unfortunately, when you go to that next level in any kind of technical field, it's not unique to space. It's in the health field. I've talked to another Bain writer, Bob Hansen, it's the same kind of thing in neurobiology, right? I mean, it's all over. You've got to communicate what you're doing to the people who have the resources to make it happen. 
And so we spent some time in the book talking about the politics of, wait a minute, who would fund what's going to be an expensive journey, assuming you have the technology to do it? Who would be in opposition to that and why? And um, there would be a lot of politics and intrigue for that. I don't think that there would be some universe universal human response of, oh, let's all get together and make this happen. I think there'd be a lot of debate. And I think there would be some very opportunity for some nefarious actors, like we have terrorists in the world today, right? Mm -hmm. Don't agree with things a lot of us agree with. So- yeah, um, Might the, even the, be a magnet for such folk. Yeah, uh, because the existence of so the Fentanarians on Proxima uh, and we talk about this with the effect of different world religions might be an issue for some world religions, a big issue, right? Mm -hmm. And and some world religions might discount them as not really being human and might not be, they might be evil or something. So there, there's a lot of that in play that, that you have to do to get the technology, right? And then you have to assume you have the technical capability to go. And so Travis and I came up with a uh, an approach that would work to go to the stars. There'd have to be lots of engineering miracles between now and then to make it happen. It's something called a photon drive. And it's kind of a, a solar sail on, uh, on steroids in that instead of reflecting light from the sail to get thrust, you basically put extremely powerful ultraviolet laser on your spacecraft. And instead of hot gas, going this way to propel your spacecraft in the other direction, use light going this way to propel it in the other directions. It's called a photon drive. And you can theoretically get up to speeds fairly close to the speed of light if you have enough power to do that. So, so that's, where, that's the- Where uh, are the photons flowing from? They're going from the spacecraft. And it's so, a sail that's- it's There's no sail. Uh, just yeah. imagine uh, uh, photons have momentum, just like hot right. gas yeah. does. In so rock. they're just they're just like pushing. Yep, they're just pushing. Right. And there's a there's a side benefit of this, and these you know you, you're baying readers out there. Uh, an extremely powerful ultraviolet laser propulsion system would make a pretty darn powerful weapon. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of issues with the space drive that's based on that. And uh, you got to be really careful where you use it, where it's allowed to be fired up, and what direction it's pointed, uh, because it could become a, a dangerous weapon. Also, what makes all these um, these photons? Is it uh, nuclear? It, we 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 get that you can have compact fusion reactions. Uh, there's been a lot of progress and like a uh, chain uh, of smaller little fusion things. And, and right now, there's a, a huge uh, effort. Uh, to, to miniaturize fusion power systems to help uh, with our energy problems around the world. And there are various pretty high profile name companies that are claiming that they're going to have compact fusion power systems out in the next few years. And it's not too big of a stretch then to assume that that would evolve over the decades to be more and more compact that you could put it on a spacecraft. Mm -hmm. You also, so this will get people up to relativistic speeds over the time it takes to go to, um, the Proxima Centauri system, yeah. And Proxima is the brown dwarf, or? Well, you know, I, I, you got me cold here. I'm not exactly sure what its, its spectral class is. I, I do know it's a lot dimmer than our star. Mm -hmm. And in order to get in the Goldilocks zone, you have to get a lot closer to the star. And when you do that, your orbital velocity to be stable is a lot faster 
And so a proximate year, a Fintadarian year is about 11 days. I mean, they're really zipping around the planet pretty, pretty about the star pretty rapidly. Uh, Proxima is also a flare star, uh, which means every now and then it, it sends out a, a lot more than our sun does, a lot more solar storms and radiation. So the planet has to have a pretty strong magnetic field like Earth does in order to protect life on the surface. And that's part of the mystery that deepens is how could there possibly be human life, <laughs> you know, that's like us on a planet that is so radically, uh, radically different. Yeah. And the other thing that you in you invent is a, is a cryogenic um, putting people under for some of this time. Um, yeah, and and there, that's not a new idea. What's what's new is there's been a lot of work over the last several years in understanding uh, topor and how different animals uh, hibernate. And in terms of uh, uh, people who have fallen through the ice and been oxygen deprived, but when they fall through the ice in extremely cold water and their body temperature goes down, uh, you can survive more than you know a minute uh, uh, without oxygen, maybe a few minutes, which is 100% increase in the amount of time you can live. Uh, if your body's really cold. So, so there's a lot of research now and there are actually for medical research now and for saving lives, they actually induce colder body temperatures to save people's lives now in hospitals. I, I won't go into a lot of details, but we have some dear friends of ours uh, who had a, a grandchild born that had to be put in, in basically really cold uh, environment for the first few days of the child's life because of some complications during the pregnancy and the delivery. And uh, it, it avoided any neurological damage because they were able to get, get, get the body cold so that uh, as the body repaired itself, it didn't damage itself. So this whole notion of topor and hibernation, we aren't yet, there yet of putting people under for, you know, for years, but it's not too big of a stretch to think that we're not that far away from it either. Yeah. It's, it's no longer pure speculation. There, there are a lot of applications for that today. So how does it work? How does the trip work? Um, it theoretically. Um, oh, this is where physics gets fun, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, you know, I'm inspired some by previous literature. Uh, I think one of the most influential models I read in the 1970s was Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. And it, it really takes the extreme case of what happens with something called relativistic time dilation, which we also have to deal with in saving Proxima. Um, and, and basically what this says is uh, nature's universal speed limit is the speed of light. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. I've heard that. But when you start looking at what that means in terms of uh, how the universe works when you're traveling at different speeds relative to other places, uh, other objects, you find some pretty strange things happen. And it's all derived by the fact that you can't exceed the speed of light. So if I'm traveling on a spacecraft going 90% the speed of light, and I shine a flashlight ahead of me, you know, I, I would measure that flash, the light from that flashlight is traveling at the speed of light. And so would an observer next to they wouldn't see it as 90% the speed of light plus 100% the speed of light equals 190% speed of light. They would only see it traveling at 90% speed of light or 100% speed of light. And that is, and as you start figuring out what has to be happening to make that true, you find out that objects that are moving close to the speed of light, the rate at which time passes for them slows down. 
And this is not just some theoretical physicist dream and you can tune it out and say, yeah, yeah, whatever. This has been measured, okay? Mm -hmm. With clocks that have been put on the space station, they're super accurate, which is traveling at a very small fraction of the speed of light. And as soon as you get it up there and you compare it to an identical atomic clock on the ground, you can notice that by very small increments of just hundreds of thousands of a second, time is passing more slowly on the space station. Yeah. How fast? Uh, the life of cosmic rays. Yeah. The, it all is different. And so what we have in this story is uh, the, the ship that goes to Proxima Centauri is traveling really close to the speed of light. And so the crew that's on board, their clock is moving at a different rate than it is back home. And that, that causes some interesting problems. Because they leave behind some family back there. Um, Inevitably. Yeah. And I don't, this is where I really don't want to give away too many spoilers, but uh, we, we do, uh, for, for, for a bunch of uh, rocket scientist guys, we, we're softies, uh, and we, we put a love story in here with some heartstring tugging, uh, yeah. because, um, you know, when, when, you, when you start thinking about the human dimension of giving up years of your life to go to the stars, and who you're leaving behind, and who you might not be leaving behind intentionally, um, you get some really interesting uh, moral, philosophical, human issues you've got to deal with. Well, what is, um, how fast would you need to be going for humans to notice the time violation? To really feel it, I, I can't give you the exact percentage, but as a notional, think, think over 65, 70% the speed of light. Uh, it's, when you get going that fast, you start noticing some real effects. Uh, you know, some, some noticeable things if you were to be, if you were able to really observe things back home simultaneously. But, you know, when you're moving that fast, you're getting signals and data and um, you, you would observe it looking at the spectrum of stars. You, you would see some odd looking things looking out the window <laughs> at the stars if you had a telescope. Um, but if you were to look at back home, you would appear to be moving in slow motion on the spacecraft, it slows down for you. And the people back home would be talking more rapidly than I'm talking now, right? I mean, you'd just be like you were in a movie speeding yeah. up 10%. You'd have to run it through some sort of filter to be able to- Absolutely. Understand, yeah. And, and that, that's part of the other problems. You know, you, you have to ask the question, going to the stars, how do you navigate? Uh, and, and we play with that too in the book because the interstellar distances are, are unimaginably vast. Uh, just to, to quickly put it in perspective, the Earth to Sun distance, which we experience every day, 93 million miles. Tony, I have to ask you, do you have an intuitive understanding of 93 million miles? I don't, <laughs> right? I just don't. I've got a car that I've driven 250,000 miles, which is roughly the distance to the moon. But, but that's nothing compared to 93 million. And, and, and that distance is nothing compared to the scale of the solar system. Neptune's out at about, what, 30 sun-Earth distances, 30 astronomical units. So in that scale, bear with me, if I take the Earth-Sun distance and I say, well, let's shrink that down and let's call it a foot, okay, 12 inches, let's call it a foot. How many feet away is the edge of the solar system? And the answer is about 30 feet. Okay, how about the nearest star? Well, on that scale, of 93 million miles being shrunk down to be one foot, 
the nearest star, which is where we're going in saving props, is 52 miles away. So 52 miles times 5,280 feet on that scale. That is a long way. And if you're talking about going from this little piece of rock circling our star to another little rock circling another star, how do you make sure you get to that rock <laughs> and that place? And that is not easy. Yeah. If you're off by just a little bit at the beginning, then, you could have some big problems. Big, big problems. So, yeah, we, we, we play around with that, too. So the ship is called the Samaritan. Um, and um, talk, uh, I don't want to get, get too much away, but the, um, the, the, I really was interested in the idea of genetic drift and what that has and how that can mess up even a civilization. Can you explain that a little bit? Because that's some of the like sense of wonder of the book comes from that um, understanding. Well, again, you have to, you have to give this poor physicist high level understanding of a topic that a biologist would be a lot more qualified to talk about. Um, it's this notion that um, over time, an isolated population, certain genes will, uh, it, I guess it's, it's kind of the same. Let's think of it this way. It, you remember, you're not supposed to marry your cousin. <laughs> and what happened to the royalty you know, of England where they always married their cousins and they ended up having imbeciles, right? And, and all kinds of inherited genetic problems. And it turns out that when, when scientists are looking at the DNA and the genes that we all have, uh, there are certain characteristic genes of population groups over time. And it's the whole basis of the 23andMe, you know, go find your ancestry kind of thing and what percentage you have of different kinds of ancestry. When I did mine, I'm, I'm very highly in my deep ancestry, Finnic of all things. Although uh, culturally I've got German and English ancestry, but they apparently were descended from the Finns, which means those Vikings, you know, left a lot of their genetics <laughs> uh, everywhere they visited uh, when they came. Well, that down would explain them. why reindeer seem to like you so much, but <laughs> maybe so going up at your house. Yes. And, and so you can kind of tell by, by my genes, what my genetic ancestry is like and, 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 and what, what it's kind of similar to, and all that plays into this notion of genetic drift and genetic similarity. And, and biologists can also use that to determine how long a population has been isolated uh, by uh, changes that happen in the, the genome, the expression of those genes from the you know, intermarrying and, and child rearing from what was the source population. And if they know the source population and they look at the differences in the genes and how many mutations and how many pairings had to have happened in order for these things to express the way they did, they can run back the clock and say, oh, this population has been isolated for X thousand years or X hundred years at the lower limits probably for that kind of thing. So it's a way of, of, of looking at a population and figuring out when they diverged from another population. Mm -hmm. So, well, that, that becomes very interesting when you're trying to figure out uh, who the hell these Finnitidarians are. <laughs> and also how to pronounce it. <laughs> Uh, one other thing that's interesting, and it plays a lot into the story, is the um, is the way that um, why do you need to? I assume that the reason I think from the book is um, the cryosleep 
it's it's really not because the journey's so boring, but because you're conserving resources. It's it's combination. I, I personally, I think I'd get pretty bored on a you know four year. Get, get me and my closest friends and put us in a small house and instant death on the other side of those walls and in deep space and we have to get along for four years or four and a half years. I think that would be really hard. Um, I wouldn't mind sleeping part of that away. Um, but it's also to conserve resources because we, we hypothesize, and I think probably not too far off the mark, that if you are in cryogenic sleep, you're not exercising, you're not using up as many resources, you, your respiration's down, you're not breathing as much air, you're not eating the food, you're not drinking the water, and you have you, you do that to, uh, to, to balance the resources on the ship. I just recently reread the story, which is kind of the inspiration for a lot of that. I think they're making a movie, The, the Cold Equations, I think it's called, or something, something like that. And it really is a, a famous short story from the 50s. Famous short story. And it really is sobering to read and, and, and every bit as powerful today as it was when it was first published, I think. And it's also very real in that you have to know at the rate of what you're going to use resources for these kind of trips because you can't take everything with you and you can't take enough because your ship would be too big. And uh, one of the things that I think uh, science fiction writers, when they're looking at real physics, to propel their spacecraft don't realize is something called the tyranny of the rocket equation. And without getting mathematical, what it means is you've got this big mass you have to push, which means you have to have your, your engine have a certain amount of fuel to give you the push you need to get where you're going. And every time you add pounds to that payload, it requires more propellant. But the rocket's got to push not only at the beginning of the voyage, those extra pounds of payload, but that extra pounds of propellant which means even more and it goes up non-linearly and, and pretty soon you get to the point of diminishing returns where adding more fuel weighs more than the extra kit you get out of your, out of your engine and so when you're designing these deep space missions you, you really have to watch how heavy things are you want them as light away as possible and that would mean conserving resources so you, you may not have enough resources for everybody to be awake all the time and how did they decide how many people to take? What what was the criteria for? Well, now there's a little hand waving. <laughs> um, see, if it were a colony ship, it would be a different answer. If you were if you were trying to establish a human presence, self-sustaining colony on another world somewhere, then you would have to take in the thousands of people, plus probably some frozen sperm and eggs of people who didn't go, right, to do in vitro fertilization to get the genetic diversity that you need to, to have a sustaining population. But in our story, we have people going to where there are already people. <laughs> um, so you, you can have a crew of just whatever size you can really manage on the ship for the ship size that you have. And, and we definitely hypothesize fewer than 100 people, much fewer than 100. So this crew didn't have to be a self-sustaining genetic population. It had to be the experts and people who could help solve the problem that's happening with the Fintanarians at Proxima. I think it's the name saving Proxima. Mm -hmm. And the ship's name, the Samaritan, as in a good Samaritan. Um, you had to have the right skills of the people to, to not only get there, but to help solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And that's what drove the crew selection. For the thing I think is the, um, plus what, the... Rain gets to go because she found it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little bit of wishful thinking on my part, right? I would like to think that the intrepid scientist who's working in their lab 
who discovers that there's life out there in another world and we decide to go, that they might get to go too. Um, I guess that's a little, you know, wish dreaming on, on my part. Yeah. Well, you can organize a back door into your work and, and <laughs> well, yeah, maybe to take I mean, this, you or you won't tell them how something well, works. That's I have to tell you uh, for my day job projects, putting my, you know, NASA scientist hat on this little spacecraft, the near earth asteroid scout, um, after it completes its mission, it's liable to be out there for millions of years without deteriorating much. You know, a few dust impacts over time. And there's almost nothing on the earth that we could build and sit out there that would last in the environment that we have here on earth for millions of years. But in deep space, this little spacecraft that I'm working on, it's going to be out there. So in my own way, there's a part of me that's going to be touching infinity. Well, you should definitely scratch your initials on the thing. (laughs) My genetics are probably on there somewhere. There's a bit of DNA somewhere. Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) An army of lessus will invade the Earth. That's it. That's it. (laughs) After the aliens discover it and make... make They'll clone me. Watch out, world. (laughs) So so, um, one other thing about that I found pretty cool was... And I hadn't... I hadn't seen before in such a story is the, um, the little ship that makes way for the Samaritan. Um, it kind of, because you're always worried about hitting these micrometeors and stuff when you're going that fast. Right. Uh, well, and, and that's, this is another problem. Um, space is big and mostly empty. And the key word there is mostly it's not completely empty. There's a lot of dust or little grains of dust and grit and uh, micrometeors, uh, not to mention, you know, the radiation that's out there, hydrogen atoms, helium atoms. And when you're traveling, and, and, and so between here and that uh, 52 miles times, you know, 5,280 times 93 million distance, even a few dust grains, and you hit them traveling, well, a pea, let's say there's a chunk of whatever piece of part of matter out there that's the size of a, of a pea. Um, you hit it going 90% the speed of light. That's like being hit with a boulder or fired out of a can, okay, or worse. And um, you got to have a way to know where you're going and do some small maneuvers to get around anything you might hit. And we, we know generally looking out into space across those distances that there's nothing big there between us and Proxima Centauri. And we know there's probably some dust because we can see a little, if, if you integrate you know, your line of sight, and and it's a little dimmer sometimes than other times of the year when the Earth's going around the sun looking at it, you can say, okay, there might be a variation of the dust density, you know, on this path to Proxima Centauri. What is it? Where is it? Is it all in one small region? Is it spread out over the whole length? If there's some big particles out there, how do you get around them? And so we think you'd have to send a precursor ship on the same path just ahead of you in order to characterize it and warn you if there's anything big. If, you're, if, if viewers saw the movie Passengers, um, fun story, love or hate the movie, I thought, it, I'm a softie, I thought it, I loved the love story in that. But the disaster they had happen was this interstellar ship hits a rock, okay? Causes a problem on the ship. You don't wanna do that. And so if you have some kind of precursor mission or missions that characterize what's along the journey, it makes it safer when you send people. Yeah. Well, it's a cool little, I liked visualizing it shooting out in front um, and, and 
checking stuff out as well. So um, that's about, probably about all we can say without <laughs> giving too much. It's it's a great, uh, it's it's wonderful, uh, wonder-inducing science fiction. It's got it's got a couple of cool love story angles, and uh, Rain is a great character as well. And her growth throughout is um, is fun to watch as um, she. Well, I had a lot of fun with, with the Rain character. Um, and, and it was, um, it's based on a, an ensemble of, you know, a writer, you create characters and there's, you can't help but somewhat base some of them on an ensemble of people you know. So it's not, it's all, not all one person I know. It's kind of a, uh, a characteristic of, of a lot of people I've met that kind of roll into some of the characters. And uh, I had a lot of fun with Rain because I can really empathize with that character if, if you made some kind of discovery like that, how that would change your life forever, right? And mm-hmm. what it would mean, not just to your professional life, but to personal life and your, your life aspirations. So it was, it was, it was fun dealing with that. Yeah. And, and we had a lot of fun with some of the other characters, uh, one of the engineers, Roy Burbank. Um, and, and I have to admit, the villain was kind of fun too. Um, and we had done this villain in the story, uh, before you and I had to chat about how I really need to develop villains in the future story. (laughs) And, um, we, we had a lot of fun fleshing out that, you know, villains can be villains for various reasons. And sometimes they have good intentions gone awry. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful amalgam of all kind of cool science fiction stuff. The book is saving Proxima. By Travis S. Taylor, and less, this is the 3D printed version. Um, <laughs> it's called a real book. <laughs> yeah, it's called a real book. Travis S. Taylor and Les Johnson, Saving Proxima. It's in booksellers everywhere. Uh, Les, thank you so much for speaking with us about Saving Proxima. Well, thanks for having me, Tony. It's always a pleasure. Private Eye, Jake Sullivan, is a war hero and an ex-con. He's free because he has a magical talent and the feds need his help in apprehending criminals with their own magical abilities. Jake's talent is gravity spiking. He can vary the force of gravity however he wishes in an area. When it comes to spiking, Jake is the best. Now a rich beauty walks into his office to hire Jake to find her missing husband, a magical healer who has ties to the Detroit mob. Jake takes the case, but little does he know that there are plots within plots waiting to ensnare him, and solving the case may require fighting for his life, with the odds stacked against him. Here is part one of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas. The entire audio drama is also available for sale at Bain.com and on Audible.com. Bane Audio Drama, from Bane Books, the heart of science fiction and fantasy. Bane Books Audio Drama presents Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles. Sullivan! Jake!
Sullivan. You in there? Oh, Sullivan. I need something thick. Last chance, Sullivan. You ready to go back to prison, Johnny? They'll never let you out this time. Yeah, I don't think so. So you're the mighty heavy, huh? The guy you can pick up three tons of steel with his mind and toss it around like it's an empty cigar box? Not just steel, Johnny. If you and your gang come any closer, it'll be one of you I'm beating against the ground like a rag dog. <laughs> Gotta be able to take a slug from a 45. Come on, Sullivan. If you come out, we'll make it fast. <laughs> it's a factory. I'm in an auto parts factory. There's steel plate everywhere. Maybe heavies do have rocks for brains. Here goes. <laughs> come on! Must be a thousand pounds! <sighs> That's better. <sighs> Last chance! Give it up, Johnny Bones, and we can all get out of this alive! <laughs> Would you listen to that wet sock? All right, boys. He's asking for it. Let him have it. Sure thing, boss. You got it. Nuts to you, you gravity-twisting freak. Merry Christmas, Sam. I'll be damned. That goon is right. It is Christmas. Detroit, one of the greatest cities in the world. The crossroads of industry and commerce, the American Paris, the city of champions, blimp town, motor city, call it what you want, it's one crowded place. Nearly two million people live in Detroit, but on that early Christmas morning, only a few of them were trying to kill me in particular. Six to be exact, Johnny and Mikey Maplethorpe in their gang, only everybody called him Johnny Bones and his brother Snowball. It all started two days before when I was coming into the office. The sign on the door reads Sullivan Security and Investigations. Unfortunately, things were slow. My last investigation job had meant confirming to an angry wife that her husband liked prostitutes. I used that money to pay the rent. Other than that, I was busted. Then. Emily Fordyce walked into the office. Mid-twenties, brunette and petite. She was wearing a blue dress, ten minks worth of coat, and shoes that cost more than all of my earthly possessions combined. And did I mention she was a knockout? Are you heavy, Jake Sullivan? That's me. And you're a magical active. That's why they call me Heavy Jake. I'm a gravity spiker. What can I do for you, Miss... Mrs., actually. I'm Emily Fordyce. How can I help you, Mrs. Fordyce? I'm here about my husband. He's been missing for a week. Sorry to hear that, but this sounds like a matter for the police. I went to the police. There's been no ransom note, and the police say he's most certainly dead. <laughs> do you mind if I smoke? Not at all. 
got any matches? Sure, let me light that for you. Want one? The Galois. From Paris. No thanks. Let's start with the basics. Does your husband gamble as he recently lost money? <laughs> Arthur? These minks didn't buy themselves, Mr. Sullivan. He's a healer. Go on. He's an active. He works freelance, fixing anyone that can afford his services. The finest families in the city have used him. Healers are rare. We're talking about somebody who can cure any illness, who can mend any wound with a touch. Arthur is very skilled. Tell me, Mrs. Fordyce, who were your husband's recent clients? My husband didn't speak about many of them. You see, sometimes influential people need to be discreet. He did do a healing for an unsavory man recently, who may be some sort of criminal. His name was something Horowitz. I can't remember exactly. Abraham Horowitz? Yes, I think that was it. Abraham Horowitz is a bootlegger, Mrs. Fordyce, a big one. He runs a gang bringing booze in from Canada. Whatever you usually charge, I'll double it, Mr. Sullivan. I'm prepared to pay half in advance. That won't be necessary. You come highly recommended. By who? Why, Arthur. Your husband? Arthur was in the first volunteers during the war, Mr. Sullivan, just like you. I believe every survivor of the Second Psalm knows who you are. Men like your husband saved a lot of lives over there. If Arthur is gone, then I don't want the men who did it arrested. If they hurt him... I want you to hurt them right back. Now, Mrs. Fordyce, I can't go around bashing in heads and such. I want you to do to them what you did to the Kaiser's army. I wouldn't wish the fate of the Kaiser's army on my worst enemy, Mrs. Fordyce. The truly deceased soldiers are lucky. Most are living in a never-ending undead hell. You have to help me. Give me a couple of days. I can't make any promises. All right. All right, that will have to do. I have a terrible feeling that Arthur is suffering. Have you got an ashtray? Yeah, yeah, I do, here. Oh yes, I do have something. It may be of help. It's Arthur's scarf. I found it on the drive outside the house. It's got something on it. It might be blood. It was lying near a large pool of, well, the police said it was blood. That's why they think Arthur is dead. In fact, there was a great deal of blood. We have a paved drive, you see, so it didn't soak in. Even if it was his, Mrs. Fordyce, he's a healer, so there's a chance. I know he's still alive. Please take the scarf, Mr. Sullivan. I don't want to tell you your business, but it might be, I don't know, a clue, perhaps? It might. All right, I'll go now. Mr. Sullivan, I've got a lot of bank accounts, but only one husband. Find him. Oh my god! 
Die Schweren kommen! Die Schweren kommen! Die tragen Louis Maschinengewehr! Bitte Gott! Lass mich schnell sequenzen! Over here, brother! Over here! Oh, I thought I'd lost you. It looks like you got yourself knocked around a little. Uh, just a little shrapnel in the shoulder and a bang on the head, big brother. Uh, right, Mom, and tell her I'm coming home. Tell her I'm coming home, Jake. Like we promised, Jimmy. Uh, Jake, where's Maddie? I want my big brother. I got separated from him in the charge. You actives and your gravity spiking. It ain't fair I didn't get no power like you and Maddie, Jay. Bear doesn't have anything to do with it, Jimmy. I promise you that. Where's Maddie? I think I can see him if I climb up a little. Jimmy, no! Get down! Maddie! Maddie! Jimmy! Jimmy. Hey, Jake. Is Maddie coming? Yeah. Yeah, he's coming, little brother. I knew it. I knew he'd come. He's on his way, Jimmy. Just hold on. Maddie, Jake, and Jimmy. When the Southern brothers stick together, nothing can hurt us. We're... Oh, you were always the smart one. What's the big word, Jake? The one about us? We're invincible. Yeah, us sulfins are invincible. <laughs> invincible. town. You haven't lost all your money and taken to the hooch, have you? Nah, Sadie, I came to see you. How's your hawk shop doing? Great, if you like dealing with four flushers all day. You in the market for a fine timepiece? Cut it out, Sadie. I came because you're still the best finder in the business. Nice hat. Is that made of tinfoil? Keeps out the voices. Some of them, anyway. I picked up a screamer this morning. Whew. Poor thing won't shut up. You know how it goes. No, not really. Did you bring me something? I brought you a sandwich. I know how you forget to eat sometimes, Sadie. Thanks. But that's not what I meant. A Christmas present. It's almost Christmas, Drake. Oh, yeah. It is, isn't it? You gotta celebrate. We're still kicking and that's saying something. Ain't you got no family to go to, Jake? Not anymore. Well, then I'm sorry for you, Jake Sullivan. I appreciate it, Sadie. I really do. I've got a job for you. A finder job. This scarf. Got a little blood on it. Find me the body that blood came out of, and I'll give you 50 bucks. This is a rush job. 
half up front. And you still owe me a present. Fair enough. But what do you get, the woman who's already got everything? I'm running low on tinfoil. Uh-huh. Rush job, eh? <laughs> I've got just the spirit for you. Strongest thing on her plane. I call her May, because, you know, she kind of reminds me of May West. Bringing her in burns up all my power for a few days, but she works real fast. I'm warning you, if this body ain't close, it could take time. If you find it soon, it's double the tinfoil. You kid, but lots of things can go wrong. If the body is buried real deep, it takes time. If the thing I'm finding is behind iron, if it's been cut up into little bits and scattered, or if it's been burned to ash... Just do your best, Sadie. I need to open up to the spirits. Hold my hat for me, will you, Jake? Sure. That's better. Here comes May! Holy smokes! There's May. Ain't she a good girl? Yes, she is. May's my good girl. She likes you, Jake. That's good, I guess. If anybody can find your guy fast, May can. Now sniff this here scarf, girl. She's got it! My girl's got the scent! Shouldn't be very long. All right. I've got another lead to follow in the meantime. Don't worry. I'll let you know, Jake. Sadie, I gotta tell you. She's an impressive critter, but I don't see the resemblance to Mae West. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, Jake. Don't you know that? The eye of the beholder! My next stop was Abraham Horowitz. Horowitz ran the Purple Gang, and the Purple Gang ran most of Detroit. Predominantly Jewish, they were the strongest on the east side, but there wasn't a criminal activity in this city that they didn't have a piece of. Mostly they stuck with bootlegging, tried to limit their killing to competitors, and held the petty crooks under heel well enough to keep the law happy. They were tough enough that even Al Capone knew it was easier to buy from them than to go to war. Well, what do we have here? A likely looking bird, if you ask me. Let's ruffle its feathers and see if it squawks. I'd like to talk to Mr. Horowitz. You got an appointment? This is a sugar warehouse. But you don't look like you're here to buy no sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Mr. Horowitz it's about a mutual friend, Arthur Fordyce. Fordyce? Hey, didn't the boss say something about some cat named Fordyce? Shut up, Ralphie. And who are you supposed to be? Jake Sullivan. Listen, is Isidore Leibowitz around? We were in the joint together. He can vouch for me. Buddy, Izzy got put in the ground weeks ago. He ain't vouching for nobody ever again. I hadn't heard. He got shot in the teeth. If you was his friend, you should have knew that. Mr. Horowitz said no visitors. Not till the bone man leaves town. Shut up, idiot! Why don't one of you guys go ask Mr. Horowitz if he wants to talk to me? Yeah? Well, he's busy. You should come back, oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> now beat it before we beat you. I'm gonna have this cigarette. 
to give you time to go talk to your boss. Nice blade. I'll tell you about time. You know what time it is? Can't say that I do. It's time for you to say you don't want no trouble. Does that ever work? Now it's time for you to bleed. I want to slice you open. Kid, guys a lot tougher than you have said that, and look at me, still standing. Not for long. Ah! Oh! What the hell? I'll be damned. He's a gravity spiker. Put me down. Put me down, you goddamn heavy! Kid, it pains me, but I think I have to teach you a lesson. See that chimney over there? The one with the black smoke coming out of it? Please, I don't want no trouble. You just let me down. Sure, kid. I'll let you down in a jiffy. Oh, I'll kill you! I'll kill you, you freak! I don't think so, kid. Don't do it! You drop him in that smokestack, he'll die! Maybe so. Sorry. You bastard! What did you do to Ralphie? It's Christmas time. I sent him to go see Santa Claus. Why, you? I'm gonna ventilate you, Heavy. Nope. Oh! It hurts! It hurts! You're crushing me! Are you kidding me? It's only ten gravities. Now empty that cylinder. What? You heard me. Fire him off to the side. Do it. Alright. Damn it. There. You satisfied? I counted five. Damn it. You can't keep this up for long. I know you heavies. When you give out, I'm gonna cut out your heart. You may know heavies. You don't know me. I survived the second song. I survived Rockville Maximum Security Prison for Actives. What do you want? Like I said, I'll wait here while you go tell Mr. Horowitz. Got it? Yeah, yeah, got it. Hey, watch out for that oh! door. Ouch. Sorry about your boys downstairs, but I didn't do anything until the kid tried to carve me a new smile. They should have asked me first. There was no need to be impolite to guests. It's bad for business. They'll live. I caught the kid before he hit bottom in the chimney, and the other one just got a few cracked ribs. <laughs> From your rep, I'm surprised you just didn't kill him. You're a living legend. I wouldn't say that, sir. Now, the way I hear it, you got early release from Rockville Prison because you're so good at that magical heavy stuff. My heavies down there said you're downright frightening how much power you got. And they ain't no slouches neither. I got a lot of practice at Rockville. But then you cut a deal with Mr. J. Edgar Hoover to take down dangerous actives, right? 
You wouldn't happen to be here on the government dime now, would you, Mr. Sullivan? No, sir. Far as I'd tell anybody, you run a sugar mill, that's all. As for the enemy, any man would make a deal with the devil to get out of Rockville. Well, no doubt. Now, my man Izzy, may he rest in peace, said you read a lot of books like some sort of professor. Reading's my hobby. Keeps me out of trouble. You got a funny idea staying out of trouble, Sullivan. Now what can I do for you? I'm looking for Arthur Fordyce. His wife hired me to find him. I liked old Arthur. He didn't care much for who he mended as long as their dollars was green. Now, let's see, the last time I used him was because uh, I started losing my vision. I couldn't feel my toes. He fixed me up good as new. Told me to stop eating so much sugar. <laughs> Not with this sweet tooth! <laughs> So you know the man? <laughs> Arthur did a lot of things for the Purples, too. Now, one of my boys got shot. I needed him back in action quick. I'd go to Arthur. He was good at pulling bullets out, but not asking about who put them in, if you get what I'm saying. Son of a bitch charged an arm and a leg, though. You know who might have taken him? So lots of folks. Maybe somebody who needed some fixing couldn't afford to pay an arm and a leg. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Ain't that the truth? Say... Maybe I know somebody else who couldn't afford a healer, but might need a healer real bad. I'm listening. Maybe we could help each other out. You gotta find somebody, and I don't get to eat sweets because the only healer in Detroit is gone. Maybe, just maybe, I know somebody who might have taken poor old Arthur. I'm open to a deal. Maybe there's this crew mucking around in uh, my area, robbing banks where they shouldn't be. Maybe this crew also works with the Mustache Peaks. The Sicilians. But this crew, mostly freelance. Maybe this crew was caught robbing a bank, one of them got shot in the gut by guards or cops or something over Albion Way. They'd be desperate enough to steal a healer. You're talking about the Maplethorpe gang, uh, Johnny Bones and Snowball? I'd like to take care of this myself, but my hands are tied. On account of business reasons. But if this crew were to get rolled up by the law, they'd be out of your hair. You find your man Fordyce, you make this crew go away, two birds, one rock, bam! If you'll let me know where this crew is, I'll go get your favorite healer back. You can indulge that sweet tooth again, Mr. Horowitz. Well, one problem. Johnny Bones enjoys killing too much, likes to cut people so they die slow, and his brother Snowball's damn near as mean. The second his crew got mended, Arthur probably died. But let me put the word out, I'll be in touch. Oh, you're a big son of a bitch, ain't ya? I eat my vegetables. <laughs> when you come up against Johnny, you're gonna have to kill him fast. Shoot him, squish him with your power, whatever you gotta do. Don't try to talk to that crazy shot. He'll cut you to pieces or his brother will freeze you just to watch you break like glass. I'll try to be careful. You goddamn better. Mark my words, Sullivan. Take them fast or you'll regret it. Everybody stay calm and don't make no sudden moves. 
and we don't have to shoot you full of holes. That sound like a good deal? Please don't kill us. Please. Didn't you hear what I just said? Please don't shoot me. I'm not going to shoot you. I said stay calm. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. I'm not going to shoot you, lady. You see my hand? Now watch. See how I make it grow into a knife? I'm going to slice you into a million pieces with this hand. No, 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 I, no, no. It's your own damn fault. Don't you see? Uh, You're uh, not uh, staying calm. Uh, now that goes for anybody in this bank. Now get those money bags full over there. Hey, Johnny. Look what I got here. Let me go. Let me go, goddammit. Get down on your knees, or I'll blow your brain down. Oh, thank God. Don't tell me. He was trying to be a hero. Nah, the coward was trying to sneak out. Can you believe it? Oh, that's bad. That's very bad. I think we need to make a special example of this guy. What? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Why don't we show him, Snowball? <laughs> Here we go. How's about that, Mr. Bank God? So cold. So, so, so cold. You better bundle up, fella. It's about to get a lot worse. <laughs> At least for you. Do it, brother. Freeze his ass. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Still is a statue! Nice work, brother! He had it coming. I wonder what would happen if I gave him a little push. <gasps> Whoops! I think I broke him! And what do you know? I like my ice crushed! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, Johnny. Stomp him! Stomp him! That's what's waiting for all of you if you don't do what my brother said. Alright, you bumpkins! Stop taking off rings and watches. We're gonna strip this place bare. Yeah, Merry Christmas to us. <laughs> <laughs> That was part one of Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas audio drama. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a Technopunk grind version of Christopher Cross sailing, running through a CD detector and rendered non-toxic to the general public. Plus thanks, praise and gratitude to Les Johnson, co-author with Travis S. Taylor of Saving Proxima. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>